Good evening and welcome to this Big Tent live event brought to you by the Humanities Cultural Programme, itself one of the founding stones of the Stephen A. Schwartzman Centre for the Humanities here in Oxford. I'm Wes Williams, I'm the Director of TORCH, the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities, and it's my enormous pleasure to be introducing the beginning of this evening's event. And mainly to say that it's an enormous pleasure, as I say, to come from live from the Story Museum here in Oxford. What a perfect setting this is for tonight's discussion. We're all, as you can see, socially distancing, whilst also live streaming this event, and we hope that you are safe and well wherever you are in the world. Before I hand over to our expert chair, I'd like to remind you that you can share comments and questions in the chat bit underneath the screen on YouTube. To tell us more about this evening's event and about our two amazing guests, I'd like to welcome our chair for this evening, Dr. Sars Eltis, Associate Professor in the English Faculty and Tutorial Fellow at Brasenose College, Oxford. Sars teaches Victorian, modern and contemporary literature with an emphasis on theatre. She's written a number of books, one on the plays of Oscar Wilde and another on women and sex on stage. Alongside work on other contemporary authors, Pinter, Coward, Beckett, Rattigan and Bernard Shaw, she is, she tells me, currently dithering, her words, between writing, on the one hand, another book about Oscar Wilde, and on the other, a book about the theatrical representation of work, from melodrama through to early socialist dramas, to musical comedies, to the play of ideas. It's hard to think of anyone better qualified to introduce our guests for tonight's lecture. Sorry, it's not a lecture at all, it's a conversation. So over to you, Sos. Thank you, Wes. And welcome everybody to this wonderful event with Lalita Chakravarti and Matt Wolf from the Oxford Story Museum. Welcome and thank you so much for doing this. So, Lalita Chakrabarti is an award-winning playwright and actress with a long and diverse career and frankly terrifying array of talents. Um, she trained at RADA and her acting credits include a performance as Gertrude opposite Tom Hiddleston in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. Um, starring in Fanny and Alexander at the Old Vic, and forthcoming Amazon series, Wheel of Time, and in another series for BBC um, called Vigil. Her most recent achievements as a playwright include Life of Pi, a stage adaptation of Jan Martel's famous novel, which opened at the Sheffield Crucible in 2019 and won four awards at the UK Theatre Awards, including Best Play and Best Director. It will open in London's West End in 2021. Yes, we are so looking forward to that. She's also written Invisible Cities, which premiered at Manchester International Festival, um, which she adapted from the classic novel by Italo Calvino. It's an ambitious, stunning, site-specific production. In 2012, her wonderful play, Red Velvet, 
staging the life of the remarkable 19th century African-American tragedian Ira Aldridge premiered at the Tricycle Theatre in London and went on to play to critical acclaim in New York and London's West End. Red Velvet was nominated for nine major awards, including two Olivier's, and Lolita won the Evening Standard Theatre Award for Most Promising Playwright, a promise I have to say she has delivered on. <laughs> Absolutely. I always think it's an odd kind of promising playwright, <laughs> but delivered playwright, let us say. <laughs> she curated The Greatest Wealth at the Old Vic in London in 2018, commissioning eight monologues, of which she wrote one, about the NHS on its 70th birthday. Most recently, in February this year, her moving and gripping two-hander hymn streamed live from the Almeida. Staging a love between men that is neither physical nor romantic, it starred Danny Sapani and her husband, Adrian Lester. Matt Wolfe is an American theatre critic based in London, where he moved directly upon completing his um, degree from Yale in English. For 21 years, he has worked as foreign arts correspondent and a leading voice on British theatre, one of the most informed, judicious, insightful critics writing today on the theatre. He's been London theatre critic for Variety and then for the International Herald Tribune. In 2009, he helped birth the Arts Desk, an arts-centred website that within a few years of its inception was named Best Specialist Journalism Website at the Online Media Awards in London. Thank you for joining us, Matt and Lolita. And if we could now start with a quick clip from him, Lolita's latest play. Three, two, one. I could have danced all night. I could have danced all night. What was he like, your dad? It was hard to get his approval. But when I did, Jesus, it was like the sun was shining on me. Please swallow your pride if I have things you need to borrow. And as you may or may not get from that clip, I have to say it was watching and only watching online, which is sadly the only way we could see it, I was so gripped by the relationship between the two men that when one said, I've invested money, my money, and, and, and I just got so tense and so worried about it, I had to stop <laughs> and watch the rest of the next day thinking I need a little bit of distance. <laughs> and I won't give away the plot at all. I hate people who give plot spoilers, but what I felt at the end was love. Oh, I really yeah. did. And that's an extraordinary achievement for an, a play that you wrote to be performed in person with people locked in the room and that close. And then instead we're scattered watching it through a screen. Yeah. So tell me about translating the two or would you have done anything different if you'd known it was going to be online? No, I don't think so. It's a play. It's for theatre. And uh, I'm so glad that it left you with a feeling of love because that's exactly what it, it's a love story. Um, between two men and uh, no I wouldn't have done anything different the, pr the process was very um, uh, unusual in that we thought 
you know, when, when my grandkids tell me, ask me, what did you do in the pandemic, Grandma? <laughs> I'll be able to go, well. <laughs> I started with this play that was going to be uh, normal, you know, in a, in, in a theatre totally full. Then it was going to be socially distanced. Then we locked down, and Adrian, who was in the play, my husband and I got COVID. Uh, and then uh, it was, how do we make this happen? Can we make this happen? Are we well enough? Yes. Uh, let's live stream it. And so it, it organically happened, um, and the Almeida, Rupert Gould, the Almeida artistic director, was amazing because he absolutely rolled with the punches and went, how, how do we make a piece of theatre now? Um, and so we knew maybe two or three weeks before um, it was streamed that that's where we were going. So I think we had that benefit of knowing, right, we are working for camera. And Adrian and Danny, the two actors, were are so versed in, in theatre and, and film, mm. so they know how to play a camera as well. So that was very, um, that was a, a brilliant given. Mm. Uh, yeah, so it's, it, yeah. it's a wonder, I mean, in the sense that it, it feels so much of the theatre in the ways also that it feels like it has a huge cast. Because yes. so much of it's about identity coming from who you love and who's around you and family and everything yeah. else, that I felt like I'd seen about 20 people, oh, <laughs> despite only two which seems like something that you, it's sort of built into your writing in some ways, that sort of what theatre can do that no, but nothing else can. It's Is all that? about relationships, right? So you want to see people play a relationship. And when you're on stage, when you take everything away, if you took the set, the costume, the lights, everything, it's me and you and our relationship. And that's the joy of theatre is how do we play? So forget, I know mm. it's the whole point is the audience. But forget the audience <laughs> for the moment. you don't get them in the room nowadays. <laughs> no, at the moment. And it's all about that thread between the two actors. Mm. And so in order for the actor to feel, it's so exposing. Uh, it's such an exposing thing, theatre. You have to feel very secure within the words, within the environment that you're in, and within your history. Mm. And so I, I, I guess I, I'm, 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 I like writing history for people. And who are they? Who were they? Who do they want to be? Mm. Who are they now? And family and relationships off stage are as important, particularly in something like this, mm. where you are not limited to two actors, but you want to create the world around them. Because that, that really makes me think of the relationship between Ira Aldridge and Ellen Tree, mm. when they're sort of learning to act off each other and kind of training each other in that intimacy. But in Red Velvet, so much of it's also about how in the theatre it's not just those two people in that moment, it's all the assumptions, theatre traditions, how we watch this that kind of get in the way or, yes. or di dictate how we understand what's actually being. But that's kind of life, right? So even now we are all judged on how we look, how we sound, what we wear, what we order in a cafe, you know, what, we're judged on everything and everything about us tells a story. Uh, and so within that environment where you're you have a stranger, an outsider coming into the inside world of the theatre uh, where everybody knows each other, but then even within them there is hierarchy and status. Who, who is leading this company? Uh, the women have to be less than the men, even though their talent might be more. You know, all of those details are there. Um, so I think they're all judging each other. Mm. So that's all the politics of theatre. Yeah. But there's also that contradiction that in theatre, the real is often less real than theatrical <laughs> explain that well I just think that, well how Ira Aldridge cannot play Othello because he's black in that in that in, context in, according yes. to the sort of all the racist assumptions of the time and so on so yes. that actually the real doesn't all 
I mean, th there's prejudice causing that. Yes, well, it's the judgments of the people who would be watching him and their preconceptions of what a black actor is. Um, and what's brilliant about doing this play now, A Red Velvet Now, is that we've moved on, thank goodness, and you judge it through a different lens. But there are still, there are details in the lens we judge it through now. So mm. people had very different responses to the play. Um, a, a few men, not a lot of men, said to me that Helena, the Polish journalist, they didn't see the point of her. And, and, but women would say, I loved Helena, that was me. And what I really liked was people mm. identified with different characters within it and it made it a more complex experience. So it's always politics, just the politics, the everything. power shifts every politics, right? From that, let's have a clip from Red Velvet. Great. Ira Aldridge was a black American actor who came to Britain from New York. He played Shakespeare and other parts up and down the country. And he was arguably one of the most famous actors um, around at the time. Some theatre is fun. Some theatre passes at the time. Some theatre is a bit of a laugh. But I hope, and the cast hopes, and we all hope that this play will be among those pieces of theatre that's important. That's why I think you should come and see it. Lovely to see that clip and to be reminded of a play from so many years ago and yet the memory is very immediate. Uh, one of the remarkable things that you've been doing during the last years, if you haven't been doing enough, is writing a book with your husband, Adrian Lester, about your careers. Uh, and it's told in sort of journal format and it's called A Working Diary. And it's extremely insightful. And with reference to Red Velvet, you have a very interesting moment in the book where you say that you worry that it might have been a one-off. And I wonder what you meant by that. Was it because you thought, I don't have another play in me, or that the acting will overtake the writing, or I don't want to write another play, or I'm only <laughs> going to write a play with my husband? <laughs> Interesting. I don't remember writing that, Matt. <laughs> um, it must have been that day. Um, I think people thought it might have been a one-off. Uh, that's what I feel now, um, because... When I started writing, well, I'd been writing a long time before Red Velvet was on, but when I came out with this play, um, it, it wasn't very, um, not accepted, but it wasn't uh, a usual path that an actor would write. And so uh, I think I was it was regarded as, oh, you've written this amazing piece, and it's obviously been in your mind and heart for quite a long time, because it took me so long to realise it. Um, maybe that's it. So I feel, I feel that was more, uh, I can't remember what I wrote in the diary, but I feel maybe that was more um, how, I, how I would interpret that now. So rewinding the tape before Red Velvet, yeah. I first became aware of you, of course, as an actor yeah. and all sorts of roles at the National Theatre and elsewhere, but particularly uh, and a very acclaimed actor. I'll never forget a performance you gave at the World Court in 2007 in a very powerful play at the World Court upstairs called Free Outgoing, by an Indian writer called Anupama Chandrasekhar, and you played uh, the single mother 
of a teenager who gets caught up in a sexting scandal. Yeah. And this seems to me absolutely a play ripe for attention again uh, today. So the point is, your acting career seemed to be going very well. How then did you fold writing into the mix? It's funny how it seems and how it feels, right? So um, uh, I guess, e am I a successful actor? I work, which is great. It's great, and I have some really good roles, but there are always gaps. There are always gaps in which you get bored and you need to stay creatively alive. Um, and then also some of the parts that I play uh, can be frustrating because you're playing functional roles that help other people's stories. And that's fine. That's what the part is, but that's what you're limited to doing. And there's so much more that you could be doing. So I guess I started writing because I wanted to um, exercise every single part of me. I didn't want to be limited to the part I was given. And I wanted to write things that I knew I was capable of. Mm. Um, and so now I've made a bit of a rod for my own back because it's I've got two careers mm. and 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 they're both uh, really touch wood. If there was any wood around, going really well. Um, so how do I fold it? I'm just dogged, very disciplined. I mean, writing and discipline is one thing that people really talk about. You know, how do you crack the discipline? So it took me a few years to crack that and go. Okay, I won't go off for a walk. I'm going to write at the computer. I'm going to sit and do it. Um, and now I write everywhere. So if I'm filming, I will write on my way to set. I will write in between scenes. I will write everywhere. Uh, and then I leave the space for the acting as well. Interesting that you've written now several times for Adrian. One of the reasons that sometimes people write plays is to give themselves a vehicle. Have you <laughs> thought about writing for yourself? And are you writing for yourself? Yes, I have now. I, I sort of avoided it to start with because I, I had advice that just be the writer. It's hard enough uh, being the writer of a play. Uh, and, and that advice was really good because with Red Velvet, it was so uh, overwhelming to suddenly be the writer rather than a performer. It's a very different level of exposure. And um, so I, I sort of adopted that as not writing for myself. But I have written a couple of projects for myself. Yes, there's a play called Karma, that before the pandemic was going to be on in Birmingham at the Rep, uh, which I hope will happen, you know, as we start to open up again. Um, and then there's a film as well that I've written apart for myself in as well. Tell us about what role have you written for yourself in the play? It'd be very interesting. How do you see yourself as a character in a play? Uh, interesting. I don't. It's not how I see myself, but it's a good part. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, so the karma is uh, about three generations of women in one family. And the grandmother is a, a self-help guru. The daughter, her daughter, which is the part I would play as a psychiatrist, and her daughter, who's 18, is in crisis. And it's about mental health within uh, a sort of a, a female family um, and, and the expectations on women and how hard it is being a girl, no matter what age you are. Mm. Um, and it's funny. I mean, it's really visceral and... Um, Anything that makes me laugh is always on the slightly on the wrong side, you know. Where, 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 if I know it makes me laugh, I know it'll get a theatre laughing because I, I've got a wicked sense of humour. Mm. So, um, so it's funny, but it's also about the pressures on these three women. It's very interesting, again, in your memoir that one feels a kind of tension in terms of agency and power because you talk in the book about the good thing about being an actor is you get hired for the job and then you do it end of story yeah. with a writer of course it's it's potentially much more amor more amorphous but on the other hand it's your baby which yes. is not the case when you're acting so as an actor I, I I'm hired at the probably at the very end of production you know where all the work's been done and then I come in and interpret it 
Uh, and it's great. You know, you go in and you just do it from one point of view, from the point of view of your character, and you fit into the story that has been seamlessly worked out by somebody else. But as a writer, I mean, the thing I really, uh, I really miss as a writer when I'm uh, being that person with that hat is that as an actor, everyone thinks what you do is marvellous. So you do something, they'll go, oh, it's brilliant, that's fabulous. Could you try this? Could you try that? And as a writer, you get none of that. You just get, right, this doesn't work, that doesn't work, this doesn't work, and you get all the notes of how to make it better. So it took me a little while to realise, oh, I don't, I don't get the applause. <laughs> <laughs> I, just have to, I just have to go in and get the notes. It's an endless stream of notes. Because when you were at the Donmar and John Gabriel Borkman, a production yes. I remember very well, you were directed by Michael Grandage, yes. were you not? Who, of course, is somebody now a very successful director yes. who had begun as an actor. actor yeah. And Michael has always said, when asked, does he want to return to acting, he says, absolutely not. <laughs> so yes. I just wonder whether, as you segued over to writing, whether maybe part of you said, like Michael, I'm going to put my acting days behind me, but it sounds like you, you never no, said that. I've not been able to. When I first came out as a writer, um, people said, well, you're going to give up the acting now, aren't you? Because now this is happening. And I, I, I can't explain it. No, it's just, it's, I love acting. I absolutely love it. If you get the parts, the bit I don't love is when the parts are boring and you just have to do it because you have to pay the bills. You know, that's what everyone, my dad says to me, well, every job's boring. And I think, oh, okay, yeah, fair enough. Okay, this is the boring bit. But, but when you get a role that requires the skill and the craft to look at the history, look at the character, work out why do I say this at this moment? What is this relationship? And how can I fly and play it live? Um, I mean, nothing replaces that. It's, it's a fabulous feeling once you're riding it. Mm -hmm. So no, I can't give up the acting. Although I understand there's a powerlessness in acting, mm -hmm. um, which I, I, I'm very lucky that I can instigate projects now with writing. I can say, right, I've got a blank piece of paper. I want to tell this story. As an actor, you can never... You can instigate projects, and you can also, you were just talking about your father, you can also honour a member of your family, and, and didn't you write a play at the Old Vic which was directly influenced by your dad? And maybe you can yes. just tell us what that was like to have that ability to honour a parent on stage. Oh, it's an amazing thing. The Old Vic asked me, I was in Fanny and Alexander, which you were talking about, Soz, and, um, and they asked if I would curate one of their One Voice seasons, which is a, a short experimental moment where they commission monologues about a certain... Uh, epic anniversary topic and it was the 70th birthday of the NHS so my dad's an orthopedic was an orthopedic surgeon um, he's retired now and um, so I love the NHS I've grown up in it you know I, we used to go there every Christmas and uh, my dad would anatomically carve the turkey for the patients you know we'd serve it you know it was that kind of that's how much I, I, I feel very at home in a hospital uh, and so when they gave me this option I was like I would love to do that and also because all the doctors and nurses and, and, and staff that I've met are from everywhere. They, they are the world that I see, and I wanted to honour that. So I had the luxury of, um, of, of commissioning these uh, eight different writers, of which I was one, eight amazing actors. Adrian directed it, actually. Um, and, uh, and then my piece, it was each decade of the NHS. So mine was the 1980s. And I, because I've been so busy sort of talking to the other writers and trying to get the stories, uh, you know, uh, different and varied, I'd, for, I'd forgotten about mine. I thought, God, what am I going to write about? Um, and I thought, my dad. So I interviewed my dad a couple of times, and he uh, explained to me how you do a hip operation and the cutting of the fascia and the precision of this incision and that incision and the bone and all of this. And then I constructed a story 
based around him. It wasn't him completely, but based around his experience and the stories he told me of um, medicine in, in India when he was there. Um, and it was brilliant. Art Malik played the part. And when my dad met Art Malik, he was, he was, he was, it was just lovely. You know, there he is. He's not a man of the theatre, my dad. Um, and so to meet somebody who was playing him, he was, he was really chuffed. It's lovely. And is it fair to assume as we move out of the pandemic, God willing, that, you know, the last 14 months for an actor might have been extraordinarily difficult because people are wondering where's the work and how are they going yeah. to find the work. But you, of course, didn't have to just cling to that. Yeah. You could, you know, you can write regardless of what's going on in the broader world. So in a sense, have you been using this period to really focus on the writing? I've been unbelievably busy. I think most of the writers I speak to have been. It's been a time for development, right? A time to sit in, 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 in your room with your computer and have your thoughts. That's all that's been left to us all locked down in a pandemic. And actually that is writing. So yeah, I've been really, really busy, which is how I wrote him. So him has been a, a, it wasn't a lockdown play. I was commissioned for it before we went into this crazy time, but it has been, um, because it's a two-hander and you could do it socially distanced uh, if we were clever, which Blanche McIntyre, our director, was very clever, um, that was speeded through. So it, it, Red Velvet took me seven years to get on stage uh, and 30 drafts, and him took me a year and five drafts where I thought, oh my God, this is so quick, it needs to be good enough. So I worked really hard on it. What is it like, though, when you're writing specifically for the person to whom you're married? In other words, do you and Adrian agree boundaries? So at the end of the day, you're not kind of, you know, lying up till two o'clock in the morning saying, what about that third line in the second scene? <laughs> and your daughters are going, Mom, Dad, stop, let's talk about something else. I mean, do you actually sort of agree boundaries or is it constantly with you 24-7? My gosh, I think we wouldn't be married if that was the version <laughs> that we had. Um, no, there are, there are proper boundaries that have not been uh, spoken, but have, like osmosis, been worked out, I think. Um, Adrian knows to leave me to it. I don't like being uh, bothered when I'm doing the first draft. It has to come... Uh, I often don't like a director attached to a first draft. I don't like anybody informing me what I... Sh giving me their voice, because I need to feel the story and own it and do my version. Um, and then once I've done the first draft, everyone can talk about it and tell me what they think. So, yes, Adrian is very, um, uh, he's not hands-on, as you'd think. He's, he's, he knows what I'm trying to say. Mm. And I think that's, that's, that is the sort of majority of writing is that in your head, you think you're saying something. And on the page, you're not. When somebody else reads it, a third person reads it, 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 it doesn't say what you're trying to say. But Adrian will go, I know what you're trying to say, try this, try that, and then he'll help me get there. But um, no, it's, it's brilliant working with him because he knows when to ease off and he also knows that I need my space to, to tell the story. You talk about a third person reading it, and of course one interesting string to your bow uh, has to do with adaptation. Yeah. And in adaptations, there's always the third person who is the author of the source material, whether it's Atala Calvino with Invisible Cities or Jan Martel with Life of Pi, and we have some clips from those that we can look at in a minute. But I just thought maybe it might be interesting to hear a little bit just generally about the appeal of adaptation, and then we can look at the clips. What, sure. Why adapt when you can write original work? What's the joint adapting? I think writing original work draws on the same, ex my, my experiences in life and my uh, ideas of story. Um, and actually, 
you have to preserve that a little bit, as, as with acting, you know, you can't... When I was at RADA, we did an exercise, sense memory, uh, Stanislavski, I was trained in Stanislavski's method, and uh, sense memory is about using experiences that you have yourself and uh, putting it into a character. So one, um, I've, I've gone off piste, but stay with me. <laughs> uh, one, I remember asking my acting teacher that if you have to play a murderer, how can you do that truthfully? And she said, you know when you're trying to kill a mosquito <laughs> and just imagine that feeling of trying to get the mosquito and that feeling is how you play a murderer. You, you kind of translate that. And so that sense of truthfulness, there's a limit to your own experience. And so having an adaptation, a book, where someone's given me the story, they might not have solved the structural drive of it or, or, or the three-act uh, sense of it. They, they might not have solved that, but they've given me the characters. They've given me what happens at the beginning, maybe not the middle, and the end. Um, and I have to work out how to get there. It's really exciting. When I did Jan's book, um, Life of Pi, I felt, I felt like he was in the room all the time and I had to honour his amazing book um, my way. So it felt very supportive, actually. Italo Calvino's book is a different thing, uh, but, um, but definitely with Life of Pi. Should like. we look at a few clips yeah, from lovely. these of Life of Pi and Invisible Cities? I mean, talk about a spectrum of work. Here you've got him, which is paired to the bone, a two-hander, very distilled. And here you have these kind of extravaganzas. I noticed that one of the reviews of Invisible Cities said, a very admiring review, said that this ought to be unstageable. And yet, obviously, <laughs> yes. it wasn't unstageable because it was staged. So how do you enter into something that ought to be unstageable? Leo Warner, the director, who is uh, 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 head of uh, 59 Productions, this digital and, and video projection company, um, said to me, you know, I, I mean, Italo Calvino's book, I hadn't come across it before. And when I read it, it's like a crazy book, you know, this opium-fueled discussion between Kublai Khan and Marco Polo, and this, these 55 cities that are cities under the ground, cities in the sky, cities underwater, crazy things. I mean, you can put this on stage how am I going to do this in a quiet theatrical manner? And he said, just write the impossible and we'll stage it. And so that's absolutely what I did. And, you know, <laughs> at the end of the play, I have um, uh, Marco Polo shows um, uh, Kublai Khan through digital projection, uh, his entire empire. So we go through um, historic uh, Grecian cities and, and, you know, Middle Eastern cities that come into present cities, into future cities and New York and all these things. And then it explodes. The world explodes. And Leo did it. <laughs> 
But that must have been so interesting because actually, although the writer is presumably the person who's usually in control, yeah. with that one, I bet you didn't really know how it was going to turn out, did you? Because there were so many yeah, elements. Because there, there were, were these, so many different yeah, facets. And there were 22 dancers from Rombert <laughs> um, and Sidi Labi, Sherkoui, yeah, who was yeah. choreographing. Yeah. Um, uh, and it was a site-specific, specially built theatre uh, by a designer who is an architect. Uh, mm. And so she built all this sort of architectural set. Um, it was an extraordinary thing to do, but it was a very different way of working because it was spatial. And that's why I wanted to do it, because it was, A, it was epic, B, it was this impenetrable book, which some people go, that's my seminal novel of my life. And some people go, oh my God, I didn't understand it. And I was sort of sat between the two of them going, yes, I understand both of you. I'm such a Gemini, you know. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, but to work with this epic storytelling and these different media um, and kind of... Theatrical sky's the limit. Obviously, financially, it wasn't. But just imagine what, what the story could be and let's try and make it happen. It was very was that good? Was that a good springboard for doing Life of Pi? Just because they were both big, they were both involving lots of different elements. Was that helpful when it came time to do Life of Pi? Well, in, a, in that way that it never rains, but it pours, I did those jobs simultaneously. Ah. So they were literally rehearsing at the same time, and I'm in rehearsals rewriting at exactly the same time. So I was going from Sheffield to Manchester to London and just kind of making, uh, going slightly crazy and eating a lot of chocolate, I think. <laughs> um, but um, I'm sure they informed each other, um, but they, I mean, it was thrilling. It's thrilling because Life of Pi is, again, digital projection in a different way. Puppets, a very strong story, um, fantastic director, Max Webster, you know, pulling all these elements together, a beautiful score of music by a composer who works a lot in Bollywood movies. Um, yeah, it, it both really exciting. Well, you have a wonderful anecdote in your book about with the rehearsals for Life of Pi, uh, the rehearsal room in Sheffield originally not being big enough. Yes. There's a quandary about how can we get a rehearsal room where we can actually accommodate all these people. All these people and all these puppets. You know, we had an orangutan, a tiger, <laughs> a, a zebra. I mean, a full-size puppet zebra. These are big puppets. And then uh, because it was such an epic piece, we had a, a, a rehearsal boat. So the boat comes out of the stage in the production, and so they built us a boat, so, and it's on a revolve. So they built us a boat because to get these five characters on a boat and make it uh, that you can see everybody and you can see the story happening, we needed the boat in the room. But once they built the boat in the rehearsal room, there was no space for the rest <laughs> of us. So, so it was, it was, uh, it was challenging, for sure. But of course, Life of Pi also had an issue that, that Invisible Cities wouldn't have had clearly, which is that Life of Pi was, is known to many who may yes. not even know it was a book. Yeah. It's known to many from a film for which Ang Lee won the Oscar for Best Director. Yeah. So that's not exactly an incidental thing. Yeah. So how did, you, how did you deal with that? Or did you just sort of put that totally to one side? I saw the film when it came out and I loved it but I didn't watch it again. And it, thankfully for me, which isn't great in life, I don't remember very much. So, it, so it's great. I didn't really remember the film. Um, and then the book I loved when I read it when it first came out. And so I read that again and again. And, um, and that, it's a totally different story, actually. And there are elements in the book that I really wanted to explore that just aren't in the film at all. So I didn't think about the film. Because again, with reference to your book, you talk about being very pleased that the critics of Life of Pi appreciated the layering of themes that yeah. you hoped would be yeah. you know, palpable, and it seems as if that's been appreciated. And now, of course, that trailer is for a production that wasn't able to happen because of the pandemic, but now will be able to happen yeah. uh, towards the end of this year. Can you say something then about maybe what the play can allow for those people who think, 
I saw the movie, I don't need to see it again. What, what can the play give them? The play will give them a thrilling ride because it's basically about survival, which is what we've all done, right, during this pandemic in varying degrees of awfulness and difficulty. It is about, I mean, it's literally about a boy who, who the, the ship sinks, his family drown, he's alone on a boat with these four wild animals, a, a Bengal tiger, an orangutan, a zebra, and a hyena, and how more now than actually when I wrote it, being on the, ship, the shipwreck of life, you know, my God, we're all, we've all been on, <laughs> bobbing on the Pacific, haven't we? We've all been in our boat going, oh my goodness, what, where am I? What's going to happen? Um, and will I reach the shore? Mm. So it's a, it, 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 it's, it's, the puppets are amazing. The puppet work, Finn Caldwell and Nick Barnes, who made and, and directed the puppets, are so lifelike but theatrical. And Jan Martel, the novelist, was uh, insistent that the animals are, are scary because these wild animals would be. And it was a great note, actually, because they are. So it's a thrilling ride, but it's also a piece of theatre, and it's beautiful to watch. But it sounds actually very movingly from what you're saying as if there, there is potentially something more apposite about the material now, yeah. post-pandemic, when we do get to see it at Wyndham's, than there might have been in June 2020. Who would have thought that? Yeah, who would have thought that? Everything takes on a new spin, right? And that's... That's the great thing about live theatre, is the relevance to where you are now. You go into a space with a group of other people and you examine the life on stage, whatever it might be, but your own. Can you say a little bit, though, Lolita, because it's been so interesting for those of us observing theatre, about how productions have been sort of held in abeyance during the pandemic, because many, many productions were announced, were rehearsed, whatever, a lot of them have fallen by the wayside. Yeah. And I know in London and on Broadway, there have been quite a few that have been kind of just put, put in a metaphoric room and waiting to be released. Uh, was it always the case that you knew Life of Pi would come back? Were the actors and you and Max, the director, sort of staying in touch just to chivvy each other along? How did you keep it palpable? It's a funny thing, you know, being a writer, I'm now on the management side. So I'm, when I'm an actor, I'm on the acting side. Uh, but when I'm a writer, I'm on the management side. So I wasn't with the actors going, what's going on? Because you don't. It's a different sort of relationship. But I knew Life of Pi was going to happen because it, we had such an extraordinary response in Sheffield. We only ran for three weeks. And the, the reviews and the, the, the chat about it was amazing. Um, and... It's a, it's a book that sold 50, I'm not taking credit for that, 15 million copies of this book have been sold around the world and the film. So it's got this huge following anyway. Um, so I think uh, if any show was hopefully going to come back, Life of Pi was a shoe in So I was lucky uh, in that I think it was, yeah, I think it was always going to happen. And did you use this time to tweak or tinker with it in a way that you might not have done otherwise just because you have the luxury of time? Or is there a point where you just have to say, no, enough, I've done what I'm going to do? I was always going to tinker with it because uh, until it, it's, it's only right when it's right. Um, and as we go into rehearsal again, I'm sure there'll be other things that need to be changed because it's a different, uh, it's a cross-arch theatre that's, that's, that we're going to build out into the stalls and it's going to be a different, le Sheffield is a thrust stage. So we need to adapt our production as well as the theatre to facilitate the show. So in terms of the technical storytelling, I might have to change some of it to fit what we're able to do. Um, but no, I did do, I did rewrites anyway, but not huge ones because the basic story works, but there were certain relationships, certain moments, 
that with the, the luxury of hindsight, you can go, oh yeah, I can just do that in the peace and quiet without the kind of crazy, oh my God, we're opening, we're previewing, <laughs> we've got to get it on. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've managed to do that. Now, as a multi-hyphenate, which you are, i.e. an actor-writer, have you ever thought of adding director to the mix? Because, as you know, there are playwrights like Athel Fugard, who writes and sometimes directs his own work. Alan Akeborn, same thing. Um, would you like to do no. all three? No, never. I'm not a director in the slightest, at all. It's not something I, I can give you a, a thought it, like, I don't mind sitting next to the... Like, Max will often ask me, what do you think? And Blanche the same, you know, and I give thoughts in terms of what I think the line means and what I intended. But no, I do not want the responsibility of making it all come together in a beautiful thing. Mm. I get the impression, too, that it's very interesting that as a writer, and this is, this is a real critic's question, <laughs> that as a writer, you are reading the reviews because you yes. want to know what the critics are saying. Now, I'm always told, and maybe the actors are lying, but I'm always told that actors never read the reviews or they do when their mum sends the reviews to them when the show is <laughs> over, but never while the run is on because that's the last thing you want. So it, are you sort of readjusting your relationship to the press as well? I, I read all reviews. I've even always, as an actor? Even as an actor. And when Ellen Tree in Red Velvet says, you know, we have to read the reviews because we have to know what they see. Otherwise, what's the purpose of us? That's what I think. I think I need to, I mean, not all, forgive me, but some critics are, <laughs> aren't right. Very free to say what you think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I like to know what is being seen, perceived, put out there. And sometimes there's something really useful. Sometimes there's something really um, encouraging. Um, yeah, I always re I've always read reviews. Mm. Do you feel as if you're writing... You are writing, because you're an actor, not necessarily for yourself, but just you know what actors like to say. You know what sounds good coming out of an actor's mouth. So can you, I assume you can't switch off the actor's side of you when you're writing because Never. you know what it's going to sound like. Yeah, I, I write completely as an actor. So once it gets to a certain stage, I'm playing all the parts as I write. <laughs> and it's thrilling. I can be absolutely anyone. I always thought I was versatile, but, you know, I can play a child or a man or I can do any, which actually now everyone can do, can't they? But mm. um, I, I, I play all the roles. I do some really dodgy accents because I do quite a lot of international parts and... Um, uh, but, but I'm on my own, so it's okay. It's just to get the rhythm of uh, the tune of the accent. Um, but yes, I always write as an actor. And I, I do know, um, ha, you know, you can tell clunky language. If, it does, if, if it's not easy to say, you can tell. But I think it all comes from story and character. So it's not necessarily how it comes out of the actor's mouth, but it's if there's story and character and a reason for saying these words... And I'm a, a, it's the thought between the words, actually, that you don't write, but you need to know what the thought is from one sentence to the next. And then you know that you're on to a proper dialogue or monologue or whatever it is. And it seems as if, and I suppose one doesn't want to jump the gun, but obviously, you know, I, I read kind of the, the industry response to things. And from the very beginning with Life of Pi, there was talk about, you know, after the, the buzz in Sheffield and the reviews, there was talk about, you know, West End opening, Baz Bum, the Boy in the Daily Mail, this is the new big thing, you know, move over the Lion King, it's going to go to Broadway, <laughs> and I don't know if they can make a movie of it because it's already been a movie. <laughs> but um, how has that palpably changed your life? Are you getting offered different things? Do you now have the luxury, perhaps, of saying no? What difference has it made to you? Um, it's definitely put me on the map in terms of not being a one-time one time hit. You know, oh, she did something else. She wrote another thing. Um, and 
yeah, no, it has. It's completely changed. I mean, but doing these epic uh, things like Life of Pi and um, Invisible Cities, uh, bigger projects are coming to me, uh, which is really exciting because it's lovely writing on a big scale. And, uh, and, you know, you still keep budget in mind, but to have to do what Leo said, think the impossible and we'll make it happen. Because actually, theatrically, you can make anything happen. In a black box, you can make the world explode. You don't need to see it explode. But you, if you put the intention right, you can do it. Um, and it's given me the luxury of, uh, with him, you know, saying, I want to write something small. I want to write something intimate. I want to come away from that and write something uh, that is a virtuosic piece for two actors who I know are extraordinary. Um, it gave me that doorway. And do you feel as an actor, I mean, we, it, there's just a sense that maybe things are a bit more fluid, a bit more open than they might have been. Definitely. Back when you were doing Free Outgoing. Definitely. You know, Glenda Jackson played King Lear. I'm not saying you need to play King yes. Lear, but you're a bit young for that. <laughs> but I mean, do, do you feel now that there are more options available to you than there might have been 10 or 20 years ago? Absolutely, definitely. The world has changed, right? Let alone the pandemic. Um, the BLM movement, everything that's happened in this last year when we've been locked away has uh, shaken, I would say, all of us um, and shaken our worldview. And I think young people are saying no to so many things that were in place. Uh, and they're right, you know, it's time to reinvent, uh, rethink. But it doesn't mean we have to throw the classics out and we have to throw the things that we did out before. We just have to find a new way of telling them that is relevant to us now, which is the whole point of all art. And if you can't do that, then why do it? You know, so I think it's really exciting, yeah. And there are so many more, well, I think there are a lot more female writers. I don't know if there are, but I feel like in the last few years, uh, female directors, uh, people of colour, I think that there's a, we can, there, there's a, been a window of, we need it, there are people doing it, because there have been a lot of us who've been quite long in the tooth and have been around for a while. Um, and so people are coming to it because they think, ah, oh, this is a career I could do. How much of all this trajectory, though, really takes you by surprise? In other words, when you got to RADA, for instance, is there any provision for wanting to write? Or, or I mean, it's an acting academy. Yeah. Do you have writing classes? Yes, we did. We had playwriting classes that were about analysis. Okay. But also, um, we did. We had a term of writing. Lloyd Trott, who still teaches at RADA, um, uh, we had playwriting classes with him. And he, he brought in a writer who taught us, and I remember the exercise that stuck with me for a term he taught us, and he sent us out and he said, listen to a conversation on the tube or in a shop or whatever it is, listen to a conversation, write it down as accurately as you can, cast your fellow classmates and then direct them in that conversation. And it's such a, it's a basic mm. writing exercise to just get reality and um, accuracy and character in language. Um, so yes, absolutely. Rada didn't, it, I mean, it is an acting training completely, but if you have, and especially now, I think that's really expanded because acting and writing, they're, they're encouraging diversifying your talents and using everything you have, which is brilliant. Um, and I, yes, the, the, there were avenues. It wasn't as clear because I didn't know I was a writer when I was at RADA. Oh, so you weren't writing kind of no. scenes for your classmates? Or no, whatever. although the last play I did, which we do as public performance for, you know, agents and directors to come and watch us and hopefully hire us, was <laughs> terrible. It was a terrible, terrible four-hander. And we were all appalled that this was our last show. It was awful writing. <laughs> so I literally every night went home and rewrote the scene. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I had never written anything in my life. But I thought it can't be any worse than what this thing is. And if this is meant to show off our talents, it's not good enough. So on my, I don't know, it might have been a typewriter. I mean, it was 1990, mm. you know, mm. it was a long time ago. I can't remember if it was maybe a computer, but I, I brought in a scene each day and I rewrote the play. I love it. Did you get credit for it? <laughs> Did you I let don't on remember. I don't that. think I could. I it's quite, so. He's quite a big writer, but it was a terrible play. He thought, I didn't remember it being that good when I wrote it. <laughs> yes, it's been sharpened. <laughs> I was that good back then. <laughs> In fact, I was wondering, following on from that, as an actor for hire now by other playwrights, do, do you think the playwrights are going to think, mm, I'm not sure about her because she's going to go home and sort of <laughs> rewrite my script and actually I wanted to say what I wrote? Yeah, no, absolutely. I have, to be, I have to put my writer head away, but I'm also extremely respectful of the writers because I think, my God, I can come in here and go, oh, no, I wouldn't say that, but you spent years working out what I would say. And so I'm very dogged about learning the lines I'm given. And if they're not, if they don't make sense because there's something that they've missed, I will respectfully offer it through the right channels. But what about, because you are, I know you do film and television, and of course the adage about screen is that we say films aren't written, they're rewritten, because everything gets tweaked at the last minute, or sometimes you've got a star who just says, I'm going to say whatever I want to say, and who cares what the script says? <laughs> yes. So what, what happens on a film set? Is it just a kind of free-for-all? I don't do film very much, but mm. on TV, some, some of them are much more relaxed and mm -hmm. some of them are dogged about the lines. So you mm -hmm. just have to see what the rules are on that particular one and, um, and play by their rules. But I am very respectful because there's nothing worse. Than, I mean, we're all, we're, we're all in it together, right? And we're all, it takes a long time for anything to get made. And when you do, that's a time for celebration. And I often feel when I'm writing and I'm in the rehearsal room, it's a fabulously collaborative time. But everybody is literally shaking you to get the best out of you. It's quite exhausting because they're going, right, this doesn't make sense. That doesn't work. We need to. And ultimately, it makes the project better. Mm. But it is hard. So mm. I'm really, a, I know what the writer is going through when uh, someone goes, oh, I wouldn't say that. You know, well, then offer something. What would you say and why wouldn't you say it as opposed to I don't like it? It's easy to blame the lines. Yeah, well, that must be interesting because I'm sure as an actor, you've been part of many a cast where at the end of a day's rehearsal, you say, let's all go off to the pub and diss the writer. <laughs> yes. And now, now you know that you're the one who's being dissed. Yes. So you can play both sides of the equation. Was well, it always yeah. uh, a, a no-brainer that you would go into the theatre? Did you have some sort of other career percolating when you were young? No, I was always going to be an actor. Once I worked out what it is, I liked drama, but, but once I worked out, oh, this could be a job, I was always going to be an actor. And when did you work that out? I think I was six. Six? Okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, uh -huh. I think I was six. But my dad found out when I was 14 and then went, oh, well, never mind, you'll grow out of that. And then, um, and then I didn't. I bet he was pretty glad when you got into RADA. Yes, he was. He didn't know what it was to start with. And then, um, because I was going to go to university, and uh, my drama teacher said, try, just try. And I thought, I'm never going to get in. I'll have a go. And then the first audition, I was in love with it. I thought, oh, my God, you can do theatre all day. You can do acting all day. They teach you fencing and voice. And I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Um, and so by the third audition, the third recall, I was like, oh, I've got to get in. I want to get in. And when I did get in, I said to my dad, oh, I got into Radha. He went, oh. And then he's a, he's a surgeon, so he went to the theatre the other theatre, uh, and he was uh, doing an operation, and the nurses, he told his colleagues that I'd gotten into RADA, and they were all like, oh, that's amazing, because they knew it. And then he changed his mind and went, yes, you can go. So from one theatre to the other yeah, theatre. Yeah, totally, yeah. That's absolutely lovely. <laughs> We've got some great questions yes. coming oh, in, if it's okay to cut in with the other Please. questions. 
So one person wants to know, what do you really want to adapt for theatre? I mean, it sounds, have you got other things that you'd love to get your hands on? Do you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing them. So, uh, and I can't talk about them until, uh, until they're out there. But I only pick things that I want to do. It's the luxury of being an actor. And what do you think draws you to the things that you... It's hard to know what the hook is, actually. I haven't quite worked it out, but I know when I get the hook. Because, I don't know, it's an instinctive, immediate thing. Um, and there's some f I've been approached with some amazing projects, um, but I haven't had the hook. And so I think, well, yes, I could do it, but the luxury, you know, it's, it's really nice that I, I can just, it takes so long to write anything. You know, it takes two years or more. So you really, I, and I need something that will keep me coming back. So I need that hook. So is there something, so you, in, in, I think it's in Red Velvet, let's talk about what makes an important play. Is there that sense yeah. you want it to be important in some way to you, to other people? It needs to move. You need to have a good time. So I'm a big fan of theatre that is enjoyment, not endurance. Mm. Uh, because I think we come out to have a good time, right? That is ultimately the point, is it's entertainment. But if I can make you feel, um, and that can be laughter or crying or anything, I want to give you a good story where you get immersed and you travel and you feel. Uh, and I, 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 I love truth, humanity, um, yeah. Brilliant. And um, somebody else says, you mentioned working with a Bollywood composer. Would you imagine working on musicals at some stage yes, too? I was uh, that. Yes, I'd love to do a musical actually. Um, and especially having a husband who has done yes, them so who can brilliantly. Do it. Yeah, yeah, who can do all that. I did have an idea for a musical um, that hasn't had it find, found its place yet. Um, but, you know, my agent says, wait, just wait. And she's right, because actually you push an idea and it goes nowhere. Right. And then uh, a few years later, a door opens. So do you get a sense of there's, I mean, like with Red Velvet, it suddenly arrived at just the right moment. Is there a sense that, the, have you got an instinct for, that you realise speaks to that moment? Or? That when things will arrive? Mm. No, not at all. I wish I did. That would be brilliant. Then I'd just be working constantly. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I did. No, I've got a story that I have uh, worked on for 20 years. And, um, and it's a true story. And it's about uh, murder that happened in 1960 that my dad was involved in. And I've written it as a film, I've invented it as a TV, I've gone through so many companies to make it into a, a TV three-parter, uh, and everyone goes, oh, it's brilliant, what a fabulous story, no. Uh, so it's, uh, but now, 20 years later, uh, theatres are interested in it, and, uh, and it feels like it's not easy, I have to write it, but, but it's there. And so it, if I'd known 20 years ago I had to wait, um, then maybe it would be easier, but no, I didn't know. <laughs> Does it feel like a real transformation, thinking of writing it now for theatre when you'd been seeing it as something yeah. for screen? Yeah, but I like writing across every um, genre. I like it because they're such different disciplines and I work in all of them. I don't, as an actor, I haven't done very much film. I've done a bit, but I've, I mean, I've adapted Red Velvet into a film and it's, it's, it's brilliant to write for these different forms because it demands different storytelling skills. And what do you feel are the essential different storytelling skills for each thing? Theatre is all relationship. Uh, TV is story, 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 get on, where are we going, where are we going, we need to go somewhere exciting. And film is, film is a bit more of an authorship of scale. You can tell scale, but you mm -hmm. can tell such detail in, in it, because I don't need to make you say anything. I just need to give you a setting that tells me what you're feeling. So it's not about dialogue, it's about the whole picture.
Um, we have another question is, um, what do you think the outlook is for drama students graduating this mm. year? Yeah, it's been so tough. I feel anybody who's under 23, 24, yeah. and in education of any time from age four upwards, I think mm. how hard has this time been? Uh, it's interesting, actually, because although it's probably felt really hard, how can you do drama on a Zoom? How can yeah. you do a movement class and a fencing class on a Zoom? Um, but there are s the thing about our industry is not adaptation as in books, but you adapt to the different situations mm. and that adaptation creates something new. And I think that drama students will have been hungry, as we've all been hungry, to do what you want to do, will hopefully have been reading, and we've all been watching. If we're not drama students, we've all been watching TV, but stories uh, and imagining who, what we can play, what are our strengths, what are our weaknesses. And the industry is hungry for young people. It just is. You need the next, you need the next mm. person who's going to replace the, the person before. Mm. It's just how it works. So then I don't think they'll... It's going to be hard because so many theatres and, and companies uh, will be struggling financially, but there will be other innovative ways that people are telling stories. And there is this um, absolute, uh, you know, like RADA, I'm still involved with RADA, um, are very much about diversify, write, act, direct, sing, dance. If you've got the skills, go for it. And I think that is going to bring about a whole new kind of type of performer. And Madeline says, do you do any research when doing your adaptations, whether it's Fanny Alexander Hamlet, Italo Cavu, no? And does your research change if you are acting or writing? So completely. You're producing a huge amount of research for things like... Completely. Ira Aldridge yeah. and then different kinds of research? Or oh, my God. I'm are you ever wary of research? No, I love research. <laughs> research is fabulous because truth is so much more interesting than fiction. And the detail you get from truth. Um, in the film of Red Velvet, I've put Edmund Keane back in because mm. he was originally in a draft, but he didn't serve the narrative and of the play. Off stage. Yes, <laughs> so he's off stage. But in the film, mm. I put him back in as a character. And uh, I was just rereading all my research for, for the film. And um, oh, it's brilliant. He, Edmund Keane used to ride a horse mm. uh, everywhere. And he used to ride it up the stairs into Drury Lane Theatre. <laughs> and his horse was called Shylock. <laughs> now, who would ever... So I mean, have to oh stage that. Well, it is in the film, got isn't it? to be there. I mean, you just think, mm. uh, I can't imagine You couldn't that. make that He was a fabulous, amazing actor and a drunk. Amazing. Uh, so is he now drunk on the horse going to the Exactly, exactly, <laughs> called Shylock. Whether we know he's called Shylock or not, I don't know if that's mm. right to call him Shylock on a film. But I just think, how could you... I would never imagine that. Mm. So I love research. I do much more research as a writer than an actor. Uh, as an actor, I'm responding more to just one part. And if there's anything that I'm talking about, then I need to know what it is. Um, so I'll look those things up. But it's much more instinctive as an actor in terms of why am I saying this in this situation... Um, and what should I know? What context am I in? But as a writer, I, I, yeah, I research all the time. Even down to, in, in Red Velvet, they're having tea constantly. And I thought, did they have milk in tea? So I Googled. Mm. And I found mm. out that China was so... Th this is such a nerdy thing. I've become mm. a real nerd. China was so thin that if you put hot tea in it, it might crack. So you put your milk in first, 
and they, knew, so and they did. Crack. Oh. And so it wouldn't crack. Oh. So in 1833, that is how they had tea. So now we know why. Now there we, we go. Now we know why it doesn't crack. There we go. Only if you have fine china do you eat There we go. Brilliant. Have you ever found something out that's been really unhelpful? Uh, yes, and then you have to work round it for your storytelling. Um, so I found out for Red Velvet um, that Ira had met, had played with Charles Keane in, in Belfast in 1829. Uh, and the play is set in, 18, I think, 29 or 31. And then he meets Charles in my play in 1833, and Charles doesn't play with him. And, I, and Charles is not meant to know that he's a black actor. And I thought, how do I get past that if mm. factually he actually met him and played? And in this version, he's saying, I won't play with him. And I didn't know he was black. So Adrian said to me, you have to make it fit the facts, which I, was like, I can't. I can't. How do I make yeah. I, I just pretend <laughs> that it's not there. Yeah. And he said, but people will know that yeah. they played together in 1820, whenever it was. Um, and then it negates this part of the story. So I kind of gave in after months of like, <laughs> um, I gave in and I've worked out a way to tell the story. And I basically, Charles was meant to, in my story, Charles, the playbills were printed, but Charles was ill. So he didn't turn up. So he never played. So history never. thinks that he played it, but you know I better. <laughs> well, I have invented and who's yeah. going to say different? That is cunning. Absolutely. <laughs> we're going with your version. It's genius. Um, also, there's a question about what what kind of involvement do you have when one of your plays transfers, like from Manchester or Birmingham or whatever, to the West End? So when uh, Invisible Cities went from Manchester to Brisbane, sadly, I wasn't asked to Brisbane, and it was the same production. So um, I was unnecessary. I mean, the writer, if the writer is necessary, you go with it. But in something like that, it was written and ready and done. Uh, with Life of Pi, I will be, um, no, I'm completely involved, so involved in any casting, in any decisions, because the, the, the space has changed, so the script might need to change to suit it. Um, so, but I'll be in rehearsals less. So when we, we did it in Sheffield, I was in rehearsals every day, um, bar when I was in Invisible Cities. In this one, I'll, I'll be there intermittently, but on the end of a phone if I need to do anything. And in previews, previews are really important. So I'll watch every preview so that then you can just do the tweaks. Because once you see it up and running with the audience, which is the, that extra um, uh, telling of what the story is, then you need to change it and shift things about. And how's that been sort of like with him, where you didn't get the Have audience? an audience. <laughs> yeah. Or not there so you can feel it at the time. Yeah. So how does, so how we does had that to develop? Do it, how different is yeah, that? Yeah, we had to do it the other way around so that the two actors hammered the script as did the director um and rupert and steph at the almeida you know everybody went at the script uh, and i changed it changed it changed it um and then and then we just did it yeah we just did it and it i mean it's that thing of making it uh, a, a, a chocolate it needs to be something that's enjoyable and you take the whole thing and it's wonderful and it doesn't outstay its welcome so length was really important uh, I'm going to make a couple of little tweaks and changes when we hopefully get to do it live again. Because uh, then you see how it's working and then you can just change it a little bit to make it better. And have you got a real hunger for that? Being Doing the work with the, with the sound of people to see responding it. and yeah. being with it? Yeah, there were bits that I wrote literally for audience, you know, mm. um, and, mm. uh, and they don't work 
when there's no audience. So the actors are just with each other, you know, or on their own. And without that hum of how people respond when they pick up on something or they, mm. they laugh, you know, that sense, you, to hear that is, is lovely. I think it's extraordinary at the end of the streaming of him where the Adrian and Danny bow. Yeah. But of course, mm. yes. they're not bowing to the thunderous applause that no. we are giving them. Yeah. No. through a screen, so it'll be lovely to do that in the yes, room. Yes, and get the applause, yeah. Mm, mm. Yeah, those are the moments you feel yeah. sort of breathed, exactly. where you can't say thank you. Yeah. You can't and it, it's part of the back. experience, it completes yeah. the experience. Yes. Yes. It's us being vital oh. as audience. You yes. think you're important as yes. Yes. writer absolutely and right. actor, but we're yeah. the audience is only in the equation. Yeah. You have to yeah. play your part, yeah. absolutely. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And there's a question, a really important question, is what is the first play you will go and see? And this is for you as Matt as well when we can go to theatres, what's like, what will be on? Yeah, <laughs> do you know, I mean, have you got a, a you can answer Well, I, that. I actually do know, yes. because I'm, it's my, um, you know, life, uh, and it's a play called Herding Cats uh, by Lucinda Coxon, and it's coming next week to the Soho Theatre in Soho, and it's only, I think, for five performances, but it's got a very interesting uh, trick to this version of it. There are three characters in the play, and in this version of it, Two of the actors will be in the room at the Soho Theatre in front of us, and the third actor, Greg German, will be appearing simultaneously. I mean, he'll be part of the cast, but beamed in from L.A., which is eight hours earlier. So it'll be 7.30 uh, UK time in the evening, 11.30 in the morning. I wonder if they'll black out the windows so that he's in the same time frame yeah. that he's in the evening, because yeah. that's very strange if he's in daylight, unless he's meant to be in America. I know. And also, I don't, of course, I don't know the play, no, so it would be interesting to see to what extent maybe that is allowed by the narrative. Maybe he's a character who's an outsider. Yeah. That's one hell of a way to be an outsider. Yeah. <laughs> also, if they're ready for all the ad-libbing and improvising or built in for when the internet connection goes, oh, <laughs> that's yeah. what we all know happens. Oh, yeah. I'm sure the understudy is, is sitting in the third row. <laughs> and Alita, have you got a top of the list thing to go and see? Well, I mean, Life of Pi is obviously Life of yeah, Pi and Invisible of Pi City. Is obviously <laughs> like right there, there. Yes, and then there's a couple of other things that I'm going to be involved in, but I can't. They're not announced yet, so I can't. Um, I can't say anything. But um, are you a <laughs> are you a playgoer though? I mean, do you like going to the theatre just if you've got a free night? Will you just go to see something? Uh, because I have got kids who are older now. I haven't been that free to just do mm -hmm. it easily. But yes, with planning, I've definitely gone once or twice a week. No, nowhere near as much right. as you well, have. Once or twice a week is a lot. Yeah, yeah. That's no, good. I definitely, I like to, it, it, you, you have to. You can't write for the theatre and not see spaces and people and writing. And well, and know how. who's out there as yeah. well. Yeah, and to see how stories work. And no, yeah, I do go. And the last question that's come in, then yeah. we are going to be totally over time. Is the curriculum in schools and universities in the right place or going in the right direction to support theatre and the arts? So I don't know anything about the <laughs> curriculum in schools and universities uh, other than cuts are being um, pushed. Mm. So if you're cutting the arts, no. <laughs> yeah. And what I do you mean, think we yeah. should be doing? What would you love to see? What, what kind of directions do you God, think? God, we should be celebrating writing, acting, dance. doesn't matter if you can do it or not. Mm. It's, it's about confidence. It's, it, it assists performance and understanding performance assists you in all elements of your life. Being able to imagine being in someone else's shoes, being able to see... Uh, what a story does. Whether you think you're into the arts or not, you're reading books, you're watching TV, you're playing video games which have stories, you know, 
story surrounds us and we need it. So um, it is about respecting it, actually, let alone the amount of money that we bring into the country. So to put it in its rightful place, it is as valuable as uh, the sciences and the maths and the humanities, all the different subjects that we do. It's essential to our existence, which is, I think, what has really been shown in the pandemic, where we've all been locked mm -hmm. away. Um, and if you don't encourage the makers of the future, um, what are you doing? Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Lita. Thank that was you. just wonderful. Um, thank you all for sending wonderful questions. Thank you for joining us. Um, here is to theatres opening, to us all being together and to yeah. proper full funding to the arts. We love the Culture Recovery Fund. Keep it there and keep supporting the arts in the universities and in schools and so on. Um, and thank you to, for Torch and Story Museum for setting this up. On the 27th of May, we have Alice Oswald giving another professor of poetry lecture. So maybe reconvening with everybody online again then. Uh, but stay safe and thank you. <laughs>